Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, fam. I'm Amara Jones. Welcome to the Translash Podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. I want to let you know that we are talking about some tough topics today. So I'm going to start this show with an expression of gratitude to you. I'm always grateful for the love you show, for the work that we are doing, because it reminds me why it's so important and that we're actually making a difference. One comment which brought a smile to my face comes from at Isam J and references our last episode with the incredible model and actress, Lena Bloom. Quote, if Lena Bloom is walking magic, Amara Jones is the goddess of the stars. Hashtag Black Trans Magic is the best magic to close quote. I love that. Goddess of the stars. <laughs> Thank you, SMJ. And if you share a comment on Twitter, Instagram, or an Apple podcast review, I might just read it on the show. This week on the Translash podcast, I'm having some very important conversations as part of Sexual Assault Awareness Month. As I mentioned, these conversations are going to touch on some difficult topics. So I wanted to give you a heads up before we delve into today's episode. Please do what you need to do to protect yourself as you listen. There might also be some explicit language as you listen to this podcast as well. Even though the issues of violence and childhood sexual assault, including the harm they do and how we heal from them, are difficult, we believe that they are crucial. So try to stick with me if you can. First, I'm going to talk to Lala Holston-Zanel, a tireless anti-violence advocate and organizer working to support and empower trans people currently at the ACLU. So the system has created this barrier for men who want to love us, but were never conditioned or taught that we could be lovable. Plus, you'll hear from Ignacio G. Rivera, a visionary leader pushing to re-envision the ways we prevent and end childhood sexual abuse. By speaking our truth and talking with others and sharing with other people that might understand what we're going through really breaks that uh, secrecy. But before we get to all of that, we're going to start off, as usual, with a little bit of trans joy. One thing raising my spirits this week are the people pushing back against the epidemic of violence against Black trans women and other trans women of color. Thorne is doing just that by providing free self-defense kits to trans people of color. Thorne prioritizes sending kits to trans women, sex workers, and disabled people. Ripley M. Bennett is one of the co-founders of Thorne. Since the launch of this project in August of last year, 
Thorne has sent out more than 300 self-defense kits. Each kit comes with a stun gun, pepper spray, a pocket knife, a personal alarm, and a self-defense guide. Kind of everything you need. Ripley says Thorne is also doing mutual aid fundraising to help trans people in need and envisioning other ways to support trans communities. She wants trans women of color to be able to protect themselves and know that they are cared for. I think it's important that the girls know that there is someone out here who wants them to be safe. It's like that moment when you're leaving a party and someone you are talking to who seems cool or whatnot says, hey, text me when you get home to let me know you're safe. And that feeling that you get of being looked after, you know, even though it's such a small thing, it's just that feels like someone wants you taken care of. Someone wants to make sure that you're okay. Like someone will come looking for you if you don't, you know, <laughs> like if you're not okay. Like too often do I hear these stories or read these stories that sound a lot like, you know, something that could have happened to me when it comes to losing black trans lives. Um, so it's just like, just to be able to hand somebody something and say, hey, I don't care if it's the taser, the knife or the pepper spray, you make sure you come home safe. Ripley, thank you so much for the vital work you are doing to help keep us safe and to help protect and uplift our girls and for the artistry you bring to the Trans Slash Commemorations Project where we honor those lost to violence. Ripley, you are trans joy. For our first segment today, I'm joined by the incredible advocate and organizer, Lala holston Zanel. She's currently the Trans Justice Campaign Manager at the ACLU. Lala has been steeped in anti-violence and intersectional liberation work throughout her career. She used to work as a lead organizer with the Anti-Violence Project in New York City, during which time she played a leading role in organizing Black trans women in St. Petersburg, Florida, after a string of Black trans women were murdered in 2018, and many feared a serial killer was on the loose. She's also played a significant role in helping get legislation passed to curb unconstitutional searches by police in New York. Lala has also been featured on the Advocates Trans 100 list, and she's currently working on a docuseries called Lala's World, which I cannot wait to see. Lala, thank you so much for joining me today. So thrilled to be able to talk to you again. Me too. I really, really was looking, really looking forward to this. I have not had a lot of time to talk with you. It's always we're in passing or that nature. So it's kind of nice to be able to actually sit and have a conversation with you. Yep. Yep. Um, people can't see, but you look amazing. <laughs> Thanks. So you have so many thoughts and longstanding expertise in this area, both um, as an advocate, as a person who's been victimized by various types of anti-trans violence. And I'm wondering what you've learned from your time that you think actually drives men to commit these crimes. We know that last year, for instance, was the worst year on record for the murders of trans women, specifically Black trans women and trans women of color. And it's a mystery. So what do you think drives men to commit these murders? Well, what drives them really is is the beginning on how we come into the world. 
We come into a world where doctors already put preconceived notions on us, which cause our parents to raise us that way and raise their children in that way, which causes them to meet folks like me and you when they become adults or teenagers, as we're seeing. And they were taught that it was wrong. You would be condemned to hell and that we should be beaten, attacked or killed and protect your manhood at all times. So the system has created this barrier for men who want to love us, but were never conditioned or taught that we could be lovable. It's a battle within their mind. And if there's no support for those individuals who want to love us to get the help that they need, this will continue to happen. And then you have systems that continue to encourage this kind of behavior with the anti-trans laws that they pass, with the the rhetoric of religion and, and all the things that the Trump administration and other people say and putting cis women against black trans women and, you know, trying to outcast kids in sports and school. So it becomes a whole... Um, divide of movement. And then he has an intersection of a man who's trying to figure out why his heart flutters for us and everyone else is telling him no. And then you have trans folks who are navigating this that are deserving of love and wanting of love. And when we are in relationships, sometimes not most of us, but some of us, where we compromise those things like, because, you know, he's heterosexual and I'm going to allow him to only come see me at night. Instead of saying no, I am enough just the way I am, and you need to love me, all of me, not just at night, every time. If someone challenges you on that, stand up and say, yes, that's my girl. And that is not what, that is what is happening. People are enjoying the fruits of our labor and making love to us and even utilizing us in the world of sex work. And at the same token, will kill us and deny us in front of their friends, their family, religion, police officers, and even in going to jail, possibly, if they kill one of us, they would still use us as an excuse saying that we fooled them or tricked them when they completely knew. But that's the default because no man would sleep with a trans woman. They know better than that. That's what the system makes it look like. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really good point, which is that the men that are killing trans women, Black trans women, they know us, right? They know us either from through some sort of intimate partnership, right? That that ranges from knowing you as a friend, knowing you as a, a partner, an ex-partner, an ex-partner that's trying to break up with you, knowing you uh, from sex work. Like, there are all these different ways, but these men largely know the women that they kill. I mean, one of the things that also strikes me about men um, who kill Black trans women is that they often don't think that they've done anything wrong. And maybe that touches upon what you just said earlier, but I'm wondering how that strikes you. I mean, sometimes, you know, they'll admit to police. They're like, yeah, I I, I killed her. Or, you know, they'll wait for the cops to arrive. There's no sense of of shame or that they've done anything wrong, that they've actually murdered a person. And, I mean, do you think that's connected to what you said before? Or is that an even deeper part of what we're talking about here? That's why I'm so glad there's a couple of states that have stopped the trans panic defense. For me, there's a whole piece that is completely missing in this puzzle that always makes me so upset. And that part is that regardless of whatever you found out, what you thought you found out, or you did not know, it does not give you a right. I don't get a right to kill y'all because you sneak in the house at night and you sleep and you go back home to your wife and your child. I don't get to kill you because you come to my house and you beat on me and you steal from me. So I needed to be really, really to make this make sense that we're trying to present a message that because I am trans and because I quote unquote fooled you, that deems it okay to kill me. 
and the fact that other cisgender people, in particular people of color, okay that rhetoric is very hurtful to me. And so it makes me revolt and not want to be in spaces with people that look like me because of that hatred. I see so many posts. I've never seen a post denying, denouncing the violence, but I've seen posts from cisgender people talk about they were fooling or this, but no one ever said, regardless of them fooling, that was a life, that was someone's mother, that was someone's child, that was someone's grandchild, that was somebody's baby. And they're not here no more because a man got to say that they were fooled and that justifies them being dead. Yeah, I think that's right. I think someone said, oh, well, maybe this person didn't know. And I said, oh, so you've just given that person the right to kill because they were surprised. So is that what we're doing? Are we just allowing people to murder because they were surprised? I mean, they're not surprised, but... But even so, my sister, like, if that reaction makes you kill somebody, why would you want that person free on this world? I always tell people, there's a trans murderer free. What makes you think they just stop at killing trans folks? There's a murderer free. And y'all okay with that, that there's a murderer on your block because it's a trans person, so you deem that not important information. We touched a little bit in the introduction upon your work in St. Petersburg, and in that organizing space, you worked with uh, local Black trans women, the police, community organizers, all of these parties that are supposedly involved in the anti-violence fight everywhere. And I'm wondering what are some of the insights that you have that you think are useful lessons from your time working with all these groups that's important for us to know in ending violence against Black trans women? I would say the the experience that I actually learned the most from, and I will always render back to it, is Elon Nettles. Elon Nettles is the first Black trans woman that I ever advocated for all the way to the end of whatever the system called is, what they want to call is justice, but it ain't justice for me. And that experience taught me how effed up our court and justice system is. It taught me how, even in how hateful men are, that he still ha- is not remorse, and he sat in court with a grin face with no remorse. And because he couldn't deal with his attraction, he felt that it was, it was worthy for her not to be here anymore. And I also get to learn how to advocate, how to push through, and how to push on um, DAs and local law enforcement to get things done. And so with that knowledge of what I've learned, I wanted to take that into community for communities who wanted some kind of justice. Because I think a lot of times it goes just to a cold case because community either doesn't know what to do or people think that community doesn't care. But we, a lot of people thought that community didn't care about Alon, but we made community care to the point we were able to make national news. Thanks to Laverne Cox and Janet Mock and Trans Women of Color Collective at that time, using all the everything they were doing to amplify and getting it on a national stage. Can you just talk a little bit about the Eli Nettles case for people who may not be familiar with it? For me, that case broke my heart and it continues to break my heart whenever I think about it. I think the first time I ever saw you was at the rally that you organized in Harlem um, for her death. And one of the things that was designed to do, I think probably a part of your strategy was putting pressure and making mayor candidates at the time know that people cared about this issue. But can you just talk about her and um, what you did in that case? Because I think um, people should know. Alana Nettles is a young woman, very smart, was into fashion, was in school, just got her new apartment, hanging out with her friends. She was just trying to go home. A guy catcalled called her 
his homeboys laughed at him and mocked him because they were laughing that he didn't know that she was trans. He was hollering at trans woman. So for folks who say that trans folks are always lying and not telling the truth, she then interjected and let him know that she was trans and to leave her alone. And then that is when he took it upon himself to fight her and launched her in her head and she hit the concrete and then she went to the hospital and she's no longer here anymore. So for folks to say that we're tricking people, she clearly said her truth and she's still not here. And when I came and I just seen so many black trans women mourning a black trans woman's death, mm-hmm. I felt liberated. I felt like when I cried, I cried for every black trans woman that I was never able and had space to cry for. Because I was told there's no room to cry. You keep it moving. The police ain't going to do nothing. Crying ain't going to bring her back. That's what I learned when I was growing up in Detroit. So I never cried for nobody. That was the first time I cried, and I cried for every girl I ever lost. And she's she's gorgeous. Yeah, <laughs> you she see was her figure. She's so stunningly gorgeous. What do you think we have to change in society as a whole to end violence? You've spoken about um, changing the culture for men, changing the way that police departments work, changing the way that detectives um, work in terms of investigating these cases, making sure that you spotlight pressure on the media. That's a lot of different things. But I'm wondering if there's some greater thing that you think that needs to happen in terms of how we end this violence. I think that we as individuals, it has to start with ourselves first. I always sit and think that had the doctor told my mother that she just had a baby and had my mama have the tools just to love me as a baby and not feel those feelings if I gravitated to a Barbie doll or a baseball bat or had to wear blue or pink, all those attributes of femininity that most parents had to reject on a previous gender child. Had parents had the tools just to love their kid and let their kid be a kid and then allow kids to go to school just to be kids and be with other kids and grow into who they are and let people say, hey, I'm trans, I'm non-binary. Let people self-determine themselves. We wouldn't be where we're at today. Then next we have to humanize trans lives. What are you doing for the ones that are living today? Oh, it's trans day of visibility. Oh, yeah, I got to put up my picture of all my friends and trans folks I met at a gala. What are you doing to pour into trans folks around you in the moment every day? Because visibility won't save you. I'm here to tell you it won't. But liberation, those are things that we can do, even if you are you don't understand it. There are so many things within the movement or other intersections that I don't understand. But one thing I can understand is I can understand what it means to be misunderstood, to be hated for it, the fear of, you know, me not having no support, the fear of telling someone what's happened to me, the fear of all the abuse I've endured from intimate partner violence, from lovers I've had, from sexual violence, from hate violence. I've experienced all of that simply because I decided to show up in the world as trans because that's who I am. And this world keeps telling me I'm going to beat you and try to remind you that you can't. But yet and still, all of that, I still stand here trans. So you can't beat it out of us. But what human to human that you are so uncomfortable that you would kill a person that you don't even know or kill a person that you just had sex with? Sit with yourself and ask yourself, why do you do that? And go seek you some resources and help. And we need to create those resources for men. Trans women do not need to do that labor no more. You don't need to be doing labor in our relationships, labor in our clients, the folks who do sex work. They need to have a plate table for the men to get the resources that they need to fix them because they're going to really harm somebody. 
because they couldn't have no space to go deal with the fact that they are attracted to the beautiful trans folks that we are. Blame the ancestors. I'm sorry the ancestors made it so sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, try that as a court defense. I blame the ancestors. Um, The call that you make for us to have a different culture where we end patriarchy, we end misogyny, where we ask men to do the essential work so that we can end violence. And then, of course, the culture that surrounds that, that also includes women who encourage men to be misogynistic and patriarchal, who raise men to be that way, um, I think is a really powerful one. Mm-hmm. And, and even ourselves, you know, my... my Go ahead. But even in my journey, for me to be honest about some things with myself, mm-hmm. that I had to sit with myself on some things because there were some things that even in my transits, I have not dealt with or been comfortable with yet or comfortable to talk about with. So not this perception that just because we're trans that we're perfect. We can cause harm towards each other as well. So we also need to be checking that. I think that what you're pointing to is the need for violence to end with us, that we are our own anti-violence projects, and that that starts with our minds and what we're encouraging in other people, what we're fostering in communities around us. And I just wanted to thank you um, for joining us and for your tremendous leadership and for the example and the power of being a person committed to a world without violence and just the tremendous amount of thought and care that you've brought to your work in figuring out how we can put all the pieces together to end a world that's really hostile against us. I thank you so much, Lala. You're welcome. We are going to end our discussion with the one, the only, and the wonderful Lala Holston-Zanel. Lala is an advocate and organizer at the ACLU who's working to empower and support trans people and communities. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. And now it's time for our second segment. Transforming how we address childhood sexual abuse is essential to ending violence overall. That's why I'm grateful to have Ignacio G. Rivera on our show today. They're a trans, queer, two-spirit survivor, as well as a Black Boricua and Taino activist. Ignacio's the founder and executive director of The Heal Project, a trans, POC, and survivor-led initiative working to prevent and end childhood sexual abuse by healing the wounds of sexual oppression and embracing sexual liberation. In addition to heading The Heal Project, Ignacio is a speaker, educator, cultural sociologist, 
and performer. Their work is influenced by their lived experience of homelessness, poverty, and sexual trauma, and focused on providing opportunities geared toward the sexual liberation for queer, trans, and gender non-conforming people with a focus on queer people of color. Ignacio, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. So first off, I wonder why you think it's really important for queer people to address childhood sexual abuse and the legacy of sexual assault. And how does that differ through a queer and trans POC lens? When I think about ending sexual violence, you know, when we think about the rape culture that we end and thinking about ending sexual violence as a whole, that conversation, I believe, cannot be had without talking about the sexual assault, sexual violence and the rape of children, which includes um, a lot of gender nonconforming and trans kids and children of color, especially black kids and kids who are um, disabled. The HEAL Project's stance is prevention of childhood sexual abuse should be uh, something that is worked on um, and addressed in, in all movements. And I think because we have a, a very broad and um, intersectional framework, it is good work, but it's also work that is um, not being funded by the mainstream. This work is being funded by sexual liberators that believe in this work because this is a new shift and a focus on how we end this, which is focusing on the thing that people don't want to talk about is sex. What's the impact of childhood sexual abuse and sexual assaults on people? And how is sexual liberation a way to heal from the harm? The impact is pretty vast. Everyone is different. Every victim or survivor is different. So we all have different paths, but the ways in which we can be affected are the ways in which we don't trust or um, have low self-esteem. It could affect us in how we have uh, relationships or fail or really have a difficult time in creating boundaries, knowing our boundaries. It shows up in every aspect. And one of the things I like to say is that childhood sexual abuse is not a childhood issue. It's something that happens in childhood and it really affects uh, the rest of your life. And it's really learning about how to navigate that. And how is sexual liberation a way to heal from what you just touched upon? Oh, yes, yes. So... In this work that I have been doing, I mean, I came to this work because of my own story of being a survivor. And one of the things, uh, the one of the main topics that kept coming up for me was um, the connection to my own body and the connection, my, my connection sexually to myself and to others and how I was having really bad relationships, not knowing what I wanted sexually, really doing things for other people. And so I started kind of focusing in on that. Um, We talk about sexual violence and we talk about the root of that, of being around power and control or power. Um, But I think it's also about sex and it's something that we don't talk about enough. My belief is that if we begin to talk about sex, and when I say sex, I mean holistic sexuality information or holistic sexuality life skill, and sexual liberation goes beyond like the act of sex. We are, we're doing a sexual liberation campaign right now at the Hill Project. People are writing in, you know, creating definitions for sexual liberation for themselves, but other people are just telling stories 
you know, one story in their life that exemplifies what sexual liberation was for them. Everyone has like their own sexual liberation path. And I think when we start opening up the dialogue and making sex not so scary and not fear-based and not based on not getting pregnant or being slut-shamed or having unwanted children, we start really talking about information, pleasure, desire, connection, and basically what humans want in life is to connect and actually having the skill in which to do that. How do you think the issue or the impact of sexual assault is different from people who are from historically marginalized communities? Like, how is it different for people who are, um, as you say, and as you focus on POC, trans, disabled, how's the impact different, if at all? Uh, The impact is really different. I think the farther you are at the margins, the more susceptible um, you may be. So this is because of the structural conditions that allow these things to happen, right? So less resources for children of color, uh, less information, especially around children with disabilities that are not seen as people who would ever be sexual. Mm -hmm. But for me, it goes beyond this idea of just sex education it really it goes through the fabric of our of all of our lives. It touches upon uh, queer issues, trans issues. It touches upon HIV. It touches upon relationships, you know. And I think the way that we've been looking at prevention has been from a very punitive kind of aspect, rather than a healing a healing aspect. And punitive, as in the survivor or the perpetrator, or punitive to people. How do you mean perpetrator? Our response focuses more on um, penalizing the perpetrator rather than healing the survivor. Is that what you're saying? We focus more on the possibility of penalizing someone, you know, either putting someone in jail or mm-hmm. whatever, that, that, that system, going through the system, the possibility of, of winning in that system. But the focus is rarely on the healing um, and the long-term effects of the uh, assault or the sexual abuse on the person. I'm wondering how you answer or how you process the fact that for so many of us um, who are trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming, this topic can be sensitive because one of the things that the right wing says or often identifies and links is uh, gender identity with sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how do you navigate that minefield? Because I also think that that may be one of the things that bears down on people as they confront this issue, you know, that uh, that false link. Yes, yes. I think a lot of people struggle with that. It's real. I'd say because we don't live in a vacuum and, you know, we hear a lot of these things. And even though it isn't true, it isn't based on any fact, it does affect us. And it, I think it affects people in terms of their sexual orientation and gender because my sexual abuse was by a female. And I, for many, many years before identifying as trans, when I was a queer woman, it took me years to come out as queer because I was so afraid that there was that connection, right? Hmm. But the funny thing is that I think we all struggle with things like that because we don't know much about it, because we don't talk as much about it, because we don't have enough information. Also because of just plain old, you know, homophobia and transphobia. I think uh, we all struggle with a lot of things, a lot of how we relate to other people, whether we are queer, trans, or heterosexual. Sexual violence and sexual assault affects how we relate to other people, period. So I think that that's the major thing. People who might be listening to this podcast 
who are at the intersections and at the margins that you've spoken about, gender identity, sexuality, race, disabilities, and confronting ableism, who might be um, suffering from the legacy of childhood sexual assault and abuse, but may not be in the space yet where they feel that they can confront it. I'm wondering what you would tell those people who may be struggling in silence about what's possible. I think I would always say first that, you know, everyone has their own journey and everyone can decide for themselves what's safe, whether they can speak about this with other people or not. If you have the opportunity to talk with someone, anyone that would listen and like witness you, I think that's always the first step. I constantly talk about like community healing. One of the things about childhood sexual abuse or sexual you know, abuse is, is a secrecy, huge shame and secrecy. And by speaking our truth and talking with others and sharing with other people that might understand what we're going through really breaks that uh, secrecy. Most of us go through it. You know, most of us go through it. We go through cycles of it. We are not broken. We learn how to navigate um, through this trauma. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that it's just been my experience. The minute you say the thing that was unspoken, you change the power balance between you and that issue. Mm-hmm. Yes. That the minute the words leave your mouth, you've begun to assert power and control. Yes. And to take back in some ways what may have been taken from you in, in those really terrifying moments. What you just said in terms of urging people to speak it with someone that they trust is is a really important, as you say, part of the journey. Also, keeping in line with the, you know, the secrecy and shame, mm-hmm. I feel the same way about, you know, the, the subject of sex, you know, when we actually hmm. think about kids, right? I'm always asked, when's the right time to talk to kids about sex? You know, when do I start talking? Well, mainly, when do I start talking about prevention? And I say, from the moment your child is born until, you know, that child crosses over and leaves their physical body, you know, stop talking about sex relationships and connections. I mean, we actually do it all the time. We just don't realize we're doing it. We talk about our boyfriends and girlfriends. We talk about our experiences, right? But what we, what's missing is we're really missing the piece of like that, how we get to um, learn what we learn from our parents or what we learn from our own experiences. Imagine if we had a, you know, a society where we were really just talking about sex, sexuality and relationships, like just all the time, that it's not... Uh, this major um, scary thing to talk about as soon as your kid turns 15 to tell them, don't get pregnant, don't have sex, don't get an STI, don't be a slut, right? We only see the negative um, and we're not learning the positive tools around the very thing that makes us human, right? Connection. Well, on the note of ending on connection, I want to thank you so much um, for joining us and to thank you for your work and to thank you for your vision um, and what you're doing. You are showing the way how healing happens. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, That was Ignacio G. Rivera, the founder and executive director of The Heal Project, which works to prevent and end childhood sexual abuse. 
Thank you for joining me on the Translash podcast. Now listen all the way through to the end of the show for something extra. You never know what we're going to give you. I'm Amara Jones. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. You can listen to Translash wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on the web at translash.org to sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's the bomb. You have to sign up. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Translash Media. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends. The Translash Podcast is produced by Translash Media. The Translash team includes Oliver Ash Klein, Montana Thomas, and Yannick Ike Mirko. Our intern is Marana Munson Burke. Alexander Charles Adams does the sound editing for our show. Our digital strategy is handled by Daniela Capistrano. The music you heard was composed by Ben Draghi and also courtesy of ZZK Records. The Translash podcast is made possible by the support of the Heisig Simons Foundation. All right, Translash fam, what am I looking forward to? I am looking forward to drum roll, cymbal crash. Um, my second shot um, as a part of my second round of vaccinations, I'm on the Pfizer regimen, which means I get the two shots, not the one and done of J&J. And I'm grateful to be able to receive this shot. I wish that the access was even more. I wish that we did more to include queer and communities of color and the disabled and homeless, um, those who are housing insecure in the vaccine push. But I am grateful that I was able to figure out um, and that I'm eligible to receive this after having survived the this deadly disease, it gives us all hope and gives a little bit more security that we can begin to reconnect with people and to build those bonds again. So I'm looking forward to that, my second vaccination shot.